sleeping on a tennis court Stuck inside a husk of lemon pledge DMZ in the hot sun This tennis ball's too pretty to harm Oh, Enfield Long Welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jest Podcast, episode 10 with Charlotte Mark. How are you guys doing today? Charlotte is the first of the fan viewers. She was just like one of you. She's in the middle of reading Infinite Jest for the first time. She reached out and said, hey, can I be on the show? I said, sure. So, episode 10, pages 270 to 299. In this episode, we will be talking about... Don Gately over there at Ennett House. We will be talking about Jeffrey Day, a character that me and Charlotte both agree needs to be smashed in the head with a brick. The sooner the better, I'd say. Dear God, I hated Jeffrey Day so, so much. I was reminded of every, like, just discovered atheism at 19, like, you know, Jesus wasn't born in December, right? I bet you feel stupid. One of those assholes who says, I'm, I'm going to live my life by cliches now. Because living your life by a cliche is a stupid thing to do. Even though, you know, I'm apparently living my life by seeing how much poison I can fit into my liver on a nightly basis. Um, we talk about Oren. We get a little bit of the backstory on Oren here. Not only how Oren went from tennis to football, but also how he met the P-G-O-A-T, prettiest girl of all time, Joelle, as she was a twirl and a baton on the side. I think this is probably our most analytic episode. Uh, Charlotte, I believe she said, has an English degree, literature degree. Um, so yeah, we really got into it. I actually had to take a break in the middle of recording, because we went a little long, and... Uh, Mine, if you remember, footnote one, this is water I had on my lovely girlfriend, pretty Perry Lerner. She is in the other room watching Pocahontas, and I'm going to go in. I'm going to go in and watch it with her as soon as this is done. We're going to watch the shit out of Pocahontas. It's going to be great. Um, oh, yeah. So she and I had a plan yesterday that our mothers were going to meet for the first time. Yeah. It's getting serious. Meeting of the moms. Uh, we're, she's gonna meet the dad next, but because I no longer have a father figure around, let's like let's just let's start with the moms. See where it goes. Figure it out. Our moms liked each other quite a bit. We went up to uh, Olives. Well, we picked up food from Olives in Princeton, New Jersey, where they have incredible hummus. Anybody on the East Coast, if you're ever in Princeton, stop by the Olives restaurant because pretty much. Everything they have there is amazing and delicious. So our moms got along. While we were there, we talked about the podcast. And Perry's mom said, we were so adorable together. And our relationship is so cute. And other people said that. Charlotte said that when I explained why we had to stop recording. Because I had to run and do that to drive 45 minutes. Um, Tell you what was revealed there, though. 
asked my mother if she listened to the episode with Cousin Frank, who was her sister's son. She said, uh, yeah, did. Didn't care for it. Turns out, uh, guys, I have been telling jokes on stage about being white trash for three years now, I think. That was actually a turn in my comedy career when I started talking about my background because I realized that everybody I was meeting in the comedy scene was like the sons of teachers and lawyers and shit like that. And somehow they weren't reacting well to me going on stage and just acting like a lunatic saying, yeah, my mom's going to die one day. Here's why I think that's good. And uh, it wasn't until I really started getting into my background. Like, I, I have a joke I tell, but it's a true story. Um, well, for starters, uh, my dad, gr- growing up, my father was in a biker gang. And before that, he had worked for a mobster who lived next door to him in southern New Jersey. A Mr. Giaquinto, who I didn't meet until I was 16 because he'd been away on a vacation for double murder. What? Uh, so yeah, my dad ran with the biker gang. When I was 12 years old, my dad got really, really drunk and admitted to me just talking that when he was in his early 20s, just before I was born, he had gotten in a fist fight at a bar and was pretty sure he killed the guy and just never got caught for it. Uh, in his exact words, like, yeah, you know, we started rumbling and uh, kicked him in the head and he, you know went on with the rest of the fight and like 10 minutes later I look over and he still hadn't gotten up so I just don't go to Dominic's anymore (laughs) yeah so that was you know 50% of the people who raised me so my mom pretty much my mom didn't understand like I you know I, I feel like you're talking shit on the family specifically me and once I point out like oh no 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 mom 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 this was 100% dad's side of the family she's like ah Okay, and even that's not fair. It's just my dad being a lunatic. I mean, you know, my mom did let, you know, her her fuck-up best friend and her three daughters just live with us for two years. That wasn't really good. They were, let's just say, pretty pretty low on... on uh, give them a totem pole. They'd be low on it. Probably not the best thing to grow up around, but whatever. So the point is, squash it over with mom. Mom, you're not white trash. You just raised me around a lot of it. And it's just a lot easier shorthand to say, I come from white trash because it makes people understand me more. Like why I don't understand this intellectual book called Infinite Jest by super smart boy David Foster Wallace. I don't get it. That's a lot. It's getting better. It's getting better as we go. I'm prediction, but again, like we we get into it in this. But like, there is no reason this book couldn't have been this engaging from page one. All right, like he clearly had the skill. He just fucked about, and that's why we're getting this in depth on Don Gately on page two seventy when it should have been there on page fifty, and then it wouldn't have been such a goddamn slog crawling up this hill. All right, I think I bullshit enough. Charlotte Mark. Episode 10, pages 2, fuck, let me check, I already forget, 270 to 299, let's get to it. Guys, follow me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Jesse Dram. 
Please like I Hate Infinite Jest Podcast on Facebook. Follow me on Reddit at Diamond Joe Quim. Again, it's not supposed to be dirty. I ran out of characters. Diamond Joe Quim. Send me an email at jessedram at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, hire a fucking skywriter. Tell people to listen to this podcast. I'm starving. I need to make 18s of dollars, and I need to get some more viewers. Don't look at me like that, Perry. All right, bye. Here we are, episode 10, the I Hate Infinite Jess podcast. Our guest this week, the first uh, fan guest we've had, this is Charlotte Mark. Charlotte, how you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Same. Yeah, so you reached out to me via Instagram pretty much to say that you were digging the podcast and you loved Infinite Jest and you wanted to come on and I said, yeah, okay, sure, and here we are. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell us a, a, little, a little bit of your literary background, um, yeah, what you like, how you first even heard of this book, and what made you reach out and want to be part of the show? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, at the time that I reached out, there hadn't been any women on the podcast, which has yet, has since then changed, or that maybe there had been only one woman, and I was like, dying to talk about the treatment of women in the book. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the thing that prompted me to reach out, first of all. But just a little bit about my background. I did um, graduate with an English degree. Um, I was kind of starting to pursue PhD, but got sucked into white collar slavedom instead, but still do very much enjoy literature. My emphasis was in um, medieval and Renaissance studies. So I do have some background in Shakespeare, which to me has kind of been an interesting reading of Infinite Jest, looking at it from the lens of kind of Hamlet and, you know, maybe where are some parallels there. But otherwise, um, I was introduced by David Foster Wallace by, well, let me ask you, how do you think I was introduced to David Foster Wallace in Infinite Jest? Um, I'm willing to guess at some point a uh, guy who, oh, I'm just going to take a swing and say, a bit more brains than brawn uh, suggested that maybe you should look into this thing. I mean, you know, no big deal. It changed my life, but I'm an exceptional individual. So you might, maybe you'll get something out of it. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, white man told me to read this. So um, a white guy, I never pictured that. A white dude, yeah, yeah, that's um, <laughs> very surprising to you, I'm sure. But um, I do feel a the, little bad bashing on white guys, just being a white yeah. guy, just because it kind of ranks like I'm not like other girls. But I mean, <laughs> if 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 ever a group had it coming, you know. I know, I know. So um, yeah, I actually dated someone in college who was a huge David Foster Wallace fan and um, Infinite Jest was like his Bible. And so um, he encouraged me to read it. I never read it when he told me to. I did read some of the essays and then um, later on ended up um, finally reading it, putting it down after 100 pages, being like, this is dog shit, and then um, picked it back up in quarantine, <laughs> basically saying, you know what, if not now, then when, basically. Yeah, looking on social media, a lot of people were finally, th th this was the impetus to finally get going on this book, so. Yeah, what the fuck else are we going to do, right? 
Very true. Very true. I mean, the world's on fire. Why not curl up with a nice book that feels like the flames of hell nipping at your <laughs> heels? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so do you have anything to promote or social media? I honestly have no idea if you have any. No. All right. Perfect. No, no. if you guys want to talk about the book, uh, you know, none of my friends want to talk to me about it. So <laughs> they're like, please don't fucking mention infinite Jest around me. Um, so if anyone wants to chat on the book, my handle's Charlotte Day Mark. Uh, you know, I'm happy to kind of talk about the book with you guys, but otherwise, no, nothing at all to promote. Okay. See, that actually has been the fun is just talking, not even just about this book. I miss talking about books with people for whatever reason. My particular friend group are just not big readers. Uh, they're all into comic books, which I've been a little mean and just said like, well, you know, comic books, I mean, they're for, they're books for people who can't read good, you know, which, <laughs> which is mean, but like, I don't, I don't have a single friend who loves comic books that like if you threw like a Vonnegut book in front of them, they, they couldn't finish it. It is, <laughs> it is a matter of ability and not preference, but. <laughs> Damn, now we know where you stand with the comic book nerds. I mean, they're, they're allowed to do, listen, I love so many, that's part of the purpose of this podcast. I love so many things that are stupidly indefensible. I went back and I watched, it was the nine year anniversary of one of the greatest pro wrestling matches I've ever seen in my life. And I went back and watched it last night and I felt so many emotions and I was transported <laughs> and it filled, it filled me with beautiful feelings of how great the world can be. And it's indefensibly fucking stupid. <laughs> and I wish, I wish more people took that approach with this book, which I guess they kind of are now. But uh, anyway. We're so certainly not taking it seriously. So Yeah. Um, yeah, the only uh, – I be sure somewhere in here we really uh, – unfortunately, if we really wanted to get in with women, there's not a lot of women in the section we're discussing. But I do really want your take on that. Yeah, um, I'm happy to jump in. You won't have to ask me twice. Okay. All right. So wherever you feel that. Uh, so pages today, part 10, 270 to 299. Our first chunk is page 270 to 281, where we meet a motherfucking loser named Jeffrey Day. I have been tweeting all week. I really hope that Don Gately just like just uppercuts him and knocks off his lower jaw at some point. And that's just the end. Maybe that'll be the end of the book. You mentioned to you, what are your feelings on Jeffrey day? Yeah. Jeffrey day also makes me want to punch someone in the face, but I think that that's kind of the point. I mean, I think that the purpose of Jeffrey day is to show this subset of people in AA that are just there because they have to be there. It reminds me of kind of being in high school and I had this like group of stoner friends and they're like, you just go from worshiping a substance to worshiping God, man. Ugh. Like it's not, yeah, it's like this very, yeah. And so um, he's insufferable, but I do see the purpose that maybe he, the reason for having him is um, to kind of, voice DFW's own reservations about AA before mm. maybe getting recovery or whatever, which I think is interesting. It's the footnote around him and Don Gately's um, conversation, I think is really yeah. hysterical. One, um, which we can talk yeah, that's about. a good one. Yeah. All right, um, let, let, let's get into some so, of the nitty gritty and we'll, uh, 
attach will converse as comes up. So Jeffrey Day is a new resident at Enfield and is frankly a pain in the ass. Gately's AA sponsor says Day, quote, could end up being an invaluable teacher of patience and tolerance for him. He has come to Enfield at 46 years of age and probably declared he is there to learn to live by cliches. Quote, one day at a time, thy will not mine be done. It works if you work it. Pretty much the too cool for school dipshit who shows up and sarcastically starts sticking it to the phonies. Though again, just another addict on the pile himself. Uh, the woman trying to speak to him, Charlotte Treat, looks to Gately for some sort of staff enforcement of dog dogma. Uh, Gately, here's a little something. This is the actual text. Gately thinks the bitch is clueless. But then again... <laughs> So is everybody else and probably Gately himself most days. This is our first time really getting into Gately's head. And I love it. I'm seeing a bit too much of myself of just harsh criticism and judgment. And then immediately followed like, well, then again, I guess I don't really know shit. So. <laughs> yeah, I love him. There is a little bit of hints of racism sometimes in Gately's own mm -hmm. internal monologues as well. And you kind of see yeah, that maybe he comes from quite a different background than a lot of the other kind of like academic characters in the book. Well, that is something I won't spend too much time on it, but it's been a thing uh, in the comedy scene. As I mentioned before, I'm a stand up, but I was really when I first started just realizing what a different background I come from these people, just because there's a lot of you know, not I, I hate to use the term PC as like a pejorative, but, you know, in individual small groups, particularly in arts, there's going to be people who just they're they're out for whatever. And one of the things I noticed, just because I do discuss racism, I come from I have a lot of racist people in my family, including my father, who's no longer with me. But I do realize that, like, it seems like a lot of people who are extremely into, like, the judgment side of politics, like, oh, you never had to, like, love a racist you know like I, I i've never seen the good in throwing those people out because i've always seen the good in them and it's like you know just you can nudge him towards something good so that's why i actually kind of like don gately having that aspect of him especially something that's considered like such a malignant unfit like modern day like oh this is my uncle he's a racist like okay never need to hear another word about him <laughs> yeah it does make him more human you see that there is a spectrum there where he does have some like really redeeming qualities, but there also are other things that have come up that, you know, aren't as great. Right. Um, ooh, great quote on uh, banal cliches and their importance quote. The, I didn't know that I didn't know is another of the slogans that looks so shallow for a while. And then all of a sudden drops off and deepens like the lobster waters off the North shore. I really love the defensive cliches in this book, particularly this section. Um, I am a big fan of them. Do you have any particular cliche that no matter how overblown or overused still has like some meaning to you or still like hits you somewhere? My dad always says, my dad is like, just like 80 series of cliches in a conversation. <laughs> he kind of speaks in cliches also. Okay. Um, he has the same stories that he tells over and over and over again, which are his kind of parables. Um, and then his proverbs are these cliches. And one of them is it is what it is. And I love that one. Mm -hmm. I have, as far as sayings, uh, this is one, this is one I actually developed with a nephew of mine. So it's, it's mine, but it is very much slogany, which is that when you're dealing with a little kid, like to tell him like, Hey, quit being stupid. 
you're not stupid, okay? You're smart, which is why I'm holding you to this standard. Like, really hold them to that. But, uh, and even, well, yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, okay. Gately reminds himself that Enfield's primary purpose is to buy these poor yutzes some time, some thin pie slice of abstinent time, so they can start to get a whiff of what's true and deep under the shallow surface of what they're trying to do, the slow, dull machinations that do eventually lead to enlightenment. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know if you have any personal history with this, but as somebody who has a lot of family that is in AA, I do have an appreciation for this type of stuff just because, and that's why this character is so infuriating. He's like... Uh, like, have you ever seen like a new atheist in their early twenties, and just <laughs> yeah. and just all they have to add to the kind of like, you know, G- yeah, if Jesus was born, he wasn't born on Christmas. It's like, yeah, okay, it's people are getting something out of this. Why are why are you taking a dump on it? That kind of thing, and just like these dull cliches, like they do, you know, it's e- it's easy to show up and shit on something, but like. To actually do the work, much like a cliche, is a dull thing you just have to do every day until it starts working. And you're not, and uh, he does make the point that he's pretty much starting shit to, in his mind, if he can make them angry, then that proves like, see, I'm not like them. I don't belong here. Right. And maybe he'll get kicked out too, is something that we learn about. But I think, um, something we learned about later about Don Gately is that he too came to the program as a skeptic and then mm. he just sh- showed up. And then over time, the um, need to use substances was relieved and he doesn't know how it happened. Um, and so I think that he's a believer in this kind of go like make your body go and your mind will follow kind of thing Uh, just like show up and then the rest will take care of itself right and i do i do like him portrayed as like this simple guy but like he does want the change so he's just kind of and that's you know a, a lot of the things you see when it comes to people in aa where it's like you know it's not it's not fun it's hard work. Um, one of the things I love, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. One of the things I loved in this chapter that I actually have never heard before was the addicts comparison of uh, quitting of getting sober as like a kind of heartbreak actually mm-hmm. where w- it, it honestly applied to me in some old relationships, like some toxic relationships that like, you know, you get away from for six months and you're finally feeling good. And then, you know, you relapse for like that, that little hit of endorphin and then it's like oh i have to restart the whole goddamn process of losing this person again because i can't have this like this is so bad for me but then every time you go back for it it's just a reset and you're stuck on it again and just yeah that that look at addiction was really i i gotta give dfw some points that's that's a good one right there yeah he for people that aren't an addict like myself he does a really good job of depicting what the addict goes through in its entirety of that experience. He also has, you know, I know in your last podcast, you covered this, but he talks about the tourist, like the person who's not really an addict, but just like takes a hit of things. It's like, Ooh, that was fun. I was like, Oh my gosh, that's me. Like I'm not, I'm like, so not an addict. So yeah, having this, um, having this context is like really, really amazing for someone who isn't in the disease. 
Oh yeah, no, that's it, those are definitely the infuriating people that uh, I've met. People do this with cocaine in the past. They're just like. They don't get anything. At, I think I was actually lucky the one and only time I tried cocaine. It literally, it was like going on a water slide. That's like, okay, that was, <laughs> that was fine. I, I, I think I'm good. But I understand as far as like, yeah, just the, the fury if you're somebody who gets so much release from any kind of drug and to see somebody else that's just like, yeah, no, nah, I'm just going to treat this as like a fun thing I do today. And like, you know, woo, take my, you know, take my brain on a roller coaster ride and that's it. <laughs> Um, exactly. Whatever. Uh, Jeffrey Day is described as a red wine and quaalude man who's here because he nodded out at the wheel, smashed his sob through a sporting goods store. Did not realize I was a tongue twister when I wrote that note. <laughs> smashed his sob through a sporting goods store window and decided to peruse the merchandise while waiting for the authorities, here referred to as capital the finest, how twee, to come fetch him. Um, Enfield staff determines he's mostly been in and out of blackouts for the last several years. Good quote here. It's the newcomers with some education that are the worst. They identify their whole cells with their head and the disease makes its command headquarters in the head, which is a bit of a shade of, uh, this is water where he was talking about the, the head making a, a great slave, but a terrible master. And yeah, I get that where like, Coming in, coming in with that little bit of knowledge can really uh, mess you up. When, when, when you're trained, it's almost a bad thing to be trained to look at. So it can be a bad thing to be trained to look at something from every angle as opposed to just, you know, throwing yourself into the process of something. Uh, I keep on seeing this as water. And after hearing your podcast on it, I keep mm -hmm. on seeing it in this text talking about, yes. you know, the worship of things. Like, what are you going to worship? You get to choose. And that's a very, very spiritual speech. And it's made me think of Infinite Jest as a spiritual text in a way um, that, like I mentioned before, is almost biblical for some people for that reason. Right. I get that. And I've, you know, I've actually read some articles. I can't remember where specifically that just, uh, one, like in a lot, I feel like as a modern younger people, we've gotten rid of religion from our lives a lot. I've actually, I, I'm trying to work on a bit. That's like how strange that would be to anyone else that like, if you went back 30 years, not having a religion would be like not having a cell phone today. It's like, well, right. what are you going to do if something bad happens? Like, you know, <laughs> where do you turn to for answers? But, uh, but yeah, the fact that I feel like a lot of our generation has gotten rid of religion, but they haven't replaced it with anything. And there is some human need for like, ritual for um i feel like particularly younger liberal people who get very much into activism like that becomes their religion in a sense which is why to have any disagreement you see the reaction they have while i'm sure they like to paint it as moral and intellectual the feeling they're feeling is blasphemy more mm -hmm. than anything else which i'm not i'm not the first to say this i'm regurgitating something i read somewhere and can't source and this is why i didn't make it to college <laughs> These are all just caveats, but interesting things. And that's why I think even things like this, like Infinite Jest, uh, you know, little, I'm, I'm glad people have their little secular Bibles, as long as it's, you know, telling them good things. Pre preaching empathy is good wherever you get it, you know? 
Well, I think we'll know when we finish the book, like what's the point? I think that's the big question mark I have because I'm, I'm only halfway through is, you know. Okay, okay you, haven't, you so haven't finished it yet either. I haven't, no. Uh-uh. I, I'm really curious about people who have read the book through and through who are listening to this and they're probably like, oh, you dumb piece of shit. You don't even know. know what's going to happen there. <laughs> I know episode, episode we're sorry seven. Sorry to the people who finished the book. Okay, we're sorry. We're doing the best yes. we can. We'll see you on the other side when we've been fully assimilated and you know are, are <laughs> one of us. One of us. Um, exactly. Okay. Uh, footnote ninety, three pages long, which is uh, this one. I actually thought was pretty weird. They turned into a footnote because it could have. Well, I, I guess it's happening in a different chronology. But uh, conversation between Jeffrey and Gately that they had before this. Um, Jeffrey is shitting on the program without trying it. Sees condescension in everything. Gately points out that maybe the condescension Day is seeing is actually just Gately's impatience with himself for not finishing school and not being able to keep up with Jeffrey Day. Uh, Gately's quote, brother, that's just all I know to tell you. That's work for me. I know for me, it don't matter if there's days I fucking hate it. I just have to do it. And it don't help me or anybody else if I go around negativing on newcomers and trying to take out my issues on trying to fuck them up with God puzzles. God, describes such a specific person. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, let me just finish this last little paragraph I have here. Jeffrey Day bitches about the meetings all being about needing more meetings forever, though no enlightenment is promised at any point. Donkey and carrot. Um, I actually made the point here with a lot of this that it's kind of, uh, are you familiar with the, the bell curve? Yes. Okay. So for those who don't know, The Bell Curve was a very controversial book written in like the 80s or 90s. And it was pretty much like the first of those, uh, you know, like, well, actually, if you go by a group, whites have, uh, well, Asians have the highest IQ and whites have the medium and blacks have the lowest IQ. And um, I'm actually, you know, I'll be, I'll be very upfront with you guys. Again, mentioning I came from a racist family. Um, I might have gone through a little bit of an alt-right thing in my early 20s. Oh, shocked face. Now, listen, let me be very specific. Busted. That's all right. Um, now, when I was first reading it, the alt-right thing, it, it seemed like the appeal was it was kind of like a conservatism without religion, which in the Bush years was, you know, it was everything evangelical, as opposed to now where it's been kind of laid bare and it's ugly, ugly truth. But yeah, at that time, I'd, I'd come out of an Ayn Rand phase. It's a lot of that suburban bullshit. Like, yeah, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, which was my own personal motivation that like, yes, I can get out of this life where, you know, my stepfather is an alcoholic carpenter and my dad is in a biker gang. And no, I can make something of myself. And then once you have the first disappointment in life, you realize, oh, all of that was full of shit. But uh, I mentioned the bell curve specifically in that, it reminded me very much of Jeffrey Day in that, you know, when people like, cause I still, I, I will still go on like 4chan and Reddit and a lot of like really far right, but just to see what the fucking animals are saying to each other. And anytime they bring up this IQ shit again, it's like, okay, well maybe a random series of tests show different races had different IQs. What does that mean? Like mm -hmm. it's, it would seem to suggest, Oh, maybe IQ tests are bullshit. But mm -hmm. the thing you always want to throw out to somebody like, okay, let's say, let's just say in some random world, that's the truth. Then what? 
what are you saying from there? Does this make you and your mediocrity better? No, it doesn't. You're a dickhead calling out a stat that means nothing because you're trying to build yourself up and you have nothing to actually add. You're not helping. Right, like what's your IQ, douchebag? Exactly. What the fuck does it mean if like the smartest white guy at Harvard has the same fucking also gets as bad a sunburn as you do. All right. Fuck you. That doesn't mean anything. You're a goddamn idiot. So once again, <laughs> disavow all that bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I'm always working to better myself. But uh, oh, yeah, it seems more like it means IQ tests don't mean shit. But you're choosing to interpret this as some way that makes you smarter because you're on the winning team, which is very much what. He's doing here. Um, I have some other stuff about AA. Uh, I have a friend who is very averse to AA because his mother took him to it all the time when he was young. She had the problem, and she eventually relapsed and you know passed away, unfortunately. But a lot of the things you hear there is like people criticize it, like oh well, most people who go to AA end up using again, which I think is such a bullshit thing to say to to act like people who go to aa if they relapse once it's all been for nothing when relapse is exactly like if you think of like a cure for cancer that only works 69 percent of the time and some people will have cancer for six months again would you ever throw the fuck away that miracle drug because like oh well it didn't help the other 31 percent. so i guess let's just not use that i mean if I take anything from this book, it's that like, it seems like AA is an American treasure. <laughs> it's like one thing we can be proud of as a society. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, God, again, just more and more notes about cliches, which again, I love cliches because they convey simple condensed wisdom to complex problems in just a few words. So um Gately often feels a, hard, a terrible sense of loss, loss, narcotics-wise, in the AM, still, even after this long, clean. I actually had something very similar recently. I haven't smoked cigarettes in five years, and me and my girlfriend watched The Crow the other day, and the mix of, like, high school goth bullshit and select, I could instantly taste, like, delicious cigarettes, like, before homeroom in my junior year again. It felt so good. Anytime I watch Mad Men, I'm like, I gotta fucking get a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I've heard that. I have heard people say that Mad Men made them try smoking. Exactly. Oh my god, we're we're just monkeys. We're I know just monkeys in suits. And <laughs> um, yeah, his sponsor says some people never get over. Mm. We'll get. Sorry, this actually has not happened before. Okay, now what happened? Literally, as soon as everything stopped freezing and I could see you again, the audio stopped working. But it's Damn okay. it. no, no, it was it was only for a second. It was just what you were what you were just starting to say. But we're recording okay. again, so we should be good. Okay, cool. No, I was just saying that um, you the disability is in direct contrast with people like Oren who are really physically able mm. and yet who are very, very sad. And yet you see people like the AFR who, I mean, they too are very physically able. There's a really Tarantino-esque scene coming down the pipe with AFR where it's like very violent and they're able to, you know, climb walls and uh -huh. fight physically and do all these different things. Um, 
But anyway, I just feel like there must be something there, especially with the contrast of Oren and Mario being um, not physically as able as Orton is, and yet being having a happier, more fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been noted on that like Mario seems to be the only good, kind person in the book, despite being described as like you know terribly deformed. But uh, that and is the way D- DFW also describes like these quote unquote deformities is a little bit like a knife in the heart. I feel like it's mm-hmm. like yeah. he always talks about like these. Yeah, exactly. He uses the word deformities, which is kind of mm-hmm. you know not PC, but yeah. Well, it's that, that in and of itself is a little bit of the cliche. I mean, going back to Quasimodo, it's like, ah, who's who's the real monster? That type of thing. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's you know, I I think I I might have to try to find somebody who's uh, a little differently abled or disabled. Everybody has different takes on which term they like there, but just uh, I could just think of my ex because I remember one of the big things she pointed out that I think really needs to be out there more in the real world is that we have this image of like the person who's like oh they're they're healthy and in shape their legs just don't work whereas that is such like a small small like very good chance if that doesn't work you have all kinds of issues like so many people who are in wheelchairs have like their damage everywhere but you just seem like oh their legs don't work like uh for example my ex she actually used a wheelchair to get around she could use her legs, you know, fine. She had a connective tissue disorder where like it would fuck up. If she walked for too long, it would just like, okay, well for that half hour walk, I am now done for the day. Mm, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's a, I don't know. That's a little cliche. I think other people could get it. Just the thing is when I, when I dated her, not to get too far into it, but this is a good moment to actually do something nice. I, uh, Shit, I would actually say that's a big part of the reason that got me out of that lack of empathy in my early 20s. Because I met a lot of people who were, you know, that's another problem with disabled people is like, you don't, you don't get to see most of them. They're, they're stuck at home and they're living very quiet, lonely lives. And I wish, I don't know, I wish we could do more for them. That's enough of my little bullshit there. Uh, <laughs> God, that is such a guy thing. Like, yeah, that, so that's enough of my bullshit about caring and paying attention to <laughs> people anyway back to important things um uh we have gately observes a man named lens and what he's teaching gately in this case it's tolerating and helping someone you want to pummel on site lens is threatened by day because he's glib and a teacher and lens thinks of himself as a kind of hipply sexy artist intellectual uh small-time dealers never conceptualize themselves as small-time dealers kind of like whores never do um we can get to the women thing here i have my little thing here uh ooh, okay i wrote something not very nice here but uh ooh. my note here was like very good take the way people who are very open-minded sexually never seem to realize they're also big time drug users who have a long established sticking things in their body with little concern of the effect it would have on them. I don't think that's supposed to be as bad as I wrote it. Guys, I was a different person last Thursday when I wrote this. I've had some real soul searching. <sighs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I do think. So here's the thing on women, okay, real fast. I do feel like David Foster Wallace does this thing where he puts women in one of two buckets. It's either I would fuck her or I wouldn't fuck her. 
And it's very clear, typically, upon meeting a female character, which bucket she belongs into. Mm -hmm. So Charlotte Treat is very clearly in the bucket of, like, we wouldn't fuck her. Right. Um, something that we learned about Avril later in the, these pages is that she actually is someone we would fuck because she is, you know, really has this like sexy assassin mm -hmm. side. And she's like very like, I don't know, she, later on in the book, they talk about her voice and how all the boys at the school really have a crush on her. And so that does kind of bother me because I just think, think it's a little, the treatment of women is a little bit two dimensional. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's all I'll say about it. I won't go on like a long rant. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, no, I definitely, again, this is something that immediately comes to mind with comedy, just because, again, it's a thing I know where uh, women do have a little, obviously, there's the whole bullshit, like, ah, women aren't funny, which assholes who haven't looked very hard have thought out. But I have right. heard one, I think it was Christina Pajitsky saying, like, you need to decide from, like, moment one when you go out there, at, like, you need to present yourself like, am I like a mother figure? Am I a buddy figure? Or am I uh oh, you probably want to fuck me figure. And you kind of need to figure that out from jump, which is. Eh. Yes, exactly. Don't exactly. Do not, do not envy women in that regard. <laughs> there is another thing that came up um, in terms of Mildred Bonk, just for like infinite just nerds. This is something mm -hmm. that I realized that she um, we learn now that Bruce G, who was in love with her, that we actually read a passage on, I think it was like on page 50, she comes back up here um, mm -hmm. in the um, form of a tattoo on his, um, oh, I don't know where it is, on I think his, it was his tricep. Right, yeah. This is his second reappearance. We've just seen him kind of lurking in the background at Enfield. Exactly. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, uh, so we have here, Gately notices, this is another thing on women, notices Charlotte Treat and her needlepoint. She used to be a prostitute, is now reformed. He remarks how prostitutes who go straight always get prim, like, like long repressed librarian ambitions come flooding out. No comment. <laughs> Gately is 29 and huge, looks less uh, built and more poured concrete. Massive square head with a Prince Valiant haircut that he cuts himself. Uh, Gately doesn't care for Narcotics Anonymous so much. Too many relapses, too many war stories told with non-disguised bullshit pride. Rampant newcomer fucking. That's known in AA and NA. It's called the 13th step. That's why I'm... Uh, oh, uh, as far as war stories, I have a buddy of mine. He has a special on Amazon Prime called It's Fine. That is Joe White. Go. His thing is nothing but war stories. It's great. He's a very funny guy. Again, that is It's Fine by Joe White. I believe it's still on Amazon Prime. Uh, Gately is partial to what worked for him. Tough love. This I like. I can identify with this. Uh, tough love. Old guys with suspenders and white crew cuts and massive successful sober eras who will take your head right off if they sense you're getting complacent or chasing pussy or forgetting that your life still hangs in the balance every fucking day. Something about a no bullshit older middle-aged man just like if if an old man comes up to me on the street out of nowhere and just says, "Hey, I'm not having any of your goddamn shit. I got my fucking eyes on you. I will do anything he tells me to do." That is from having, that is yeah, from I love the crocodiles. Yeah, oh, the crocodiles. That's what, okay. Um so I have a whole thing here that fucking annoys me, which is 
Why wasn't this shit on page 50? Why did I have to read? Uh, thank you. 270 pages to get to this awesome, like, oh my God, it's character motivation and growth and something resembling a hero who seems to be moving in a direction and struggling with things. Why the fuck have I gone through so much of this book and this is just happening now? Dude, you took the words right out of my mouth. And especially, I know that, I don't know if you've gone to this part, but when they talk about the convexity and they talk about the president and the political situation, I was like, hello, like where was this 250 pages ago? Right. Like, I wonder if this isn't part of the reason people get so obsessive over this book as opposed to just being like, oh, I like that book. Because there is a kind of a, okay, you know what? Uh, the thing that's in the news right now is Trump's niece has written a book on why Trump is such a, you know, uh, how he's gotten away with so much shit. And her particular take is that he's such a bullshit artist that like sells people like, yeah, I'm going to fix whatever you want. And then once you're involved with him, it takes like everybody's doubled down so much that it would cost you so much to, to say, oh, this guy was full of shit and I've been had, which partly makes me wonder if like this is just so set up to set up a reward in the brain that the fact you had to hunt and peck so long for this good thing that so many people like, ah. I had this conversation with somebody that like, there's two kinds of people when you read this book. If you read it and you see like these weird ter terms you never heard anywhere, some people think like, ooh, neat. This is a, a little treasure hunt for me to find. And the thing I've been having when I'm looking through this and I see a weird word and I look up the definition and it says awkwardly skinny, it's like, fuck you for not just saying awkwardly skinny. Go fuck yourself, Wallace. I think for me, I... I'm probably the person that's reading it saying, okay, this is a puzzle for myself and that's how I get through it because otherwise I feel like I'd be like, if I looked at it as entertainment, I would say, fuck this because mm. um, I don't find it particularly entertaining. But one thing I did tell you initially in our Instagram conversation was it does feel like the guy that's mean to me. So now I become obsessed with it. Like there is mm -hmm. breadcrumbing and I'm like, okay, well, like, maybe he likes me now, and, like, maybe it's going to be different now. And then we go to the next page, and it's, like, a, you know, description that's um, three pages long about the architecture of the Ennis, Enfield Tennis Academy. And I'm like, oh, fuck, maybe he doesn't love me, you know? <laughs> yeah, oh, God, it is a little bit like that. Like, yeah, read, read four pages on the specs of a film cartridge. I, I love you, you dumb bitch. Here's some shit about Gately and how, how he's struggling. <laughs> inside <laughs> oh god yeah like, i'm a sucker thing, we're suckers like the thing this is not good structure i mean like dress it up however you like if you put like a kid's birthday present on the roof yes the kid will love the toy all the more for having gone the distance to get it but you're still a piece of shit for putting it on the roof you know <laughs> oh god um it's the Serpinski Triangle, okay, Jesse? I had, I had somebody message me the other day <laughs> offering to really explain the Serpinski gasket. I might have them on the show. I don't know if I'm quite enough of a masochist for that yet, but we will see. Um, okay, Gately thinks about day and what he'd like to tell him about cliches, that they're soothing, they remind you of common sense, they drown out the silence, and the silence is deadly. Silence is the space that the spider, which he refers to as addiction, naturally seeks to fill. I honestly get that that's why when i drink i not a day drinker i drink at night because my 
boredom needs to be beaten into the ground for me to get to sleep. Uh, Lens and Day <laughs> motherfuck each other, both hoping to instigate something. Day is certain to push just against the boundary without ever bleeding over it, which would surely result in an ass kicking for him. Okay, that is that little section there. Um, all right. Next chunk, we have the returning from the Long Island matches against Port Washington, 281 to 299. Uh, John Wayne and Hal only lost five total games between them. Lash stalked, I messed that up. Shacked lost to a kid with terrible, debilitating nerves. Shacked wasn't upset, and it was remarked upon by the staff. Remember, this character has already decided to not pursue tennis professionally. Pemulus won a set after his opponent had gotten strangely lethargic and disoriented, uh, was escorted off the field, giving Pemulus the VD, victory by default, after the opponent claimed the tennis balls were too pretty to hit. This is nice foreshadowing, because this is, of course, it seems as if uh, Pemulus might have slipped this kid a little bit of the old DMZ there. Oh, I didn't even put two and two oh, you together. I th- what, the no, main- well, I thought maybe that something that he was having a mental breakdown, which also mm. wouldn't have been surprising for David Foster Wallace to just like slip into True. a tennis match. But wow. Well, just- it, the, the specific getaway, getaway, the specific, uh, whatever, the thing that gave it away, there we go. The thing that gave it away to me <laughs> is that the tennis ball was too pretty to hit. And in his initial yes. description of DMZ, how he mentioned that. Uh, they used it on soldiers, and it, they became so passive and anti-aggressive. That's what it seems to be. Uh, this opponent was later seen at the post-meat mixers uh, and dance, eating hors d'oeuvres with utensils and one point without hands, and then telling the headmaster's wife how he always wanted to do her from behind. What a charm. Oh <laughs> that part's so good. Um, they all entered... They all aboard. The, they all board the bus and entertain themselves on the way home. Stitt is not on the bus as he always finds a mysterious way back because he's always in a negative mood after wins. I know people like that. They're infuriating. Uh, a leaflet is passed around detailing players Keith Freer and Bernadette Longley, who'd been caught having sex under an Adidas blanket in the bus back in September. The pamphlet made its way to Bernadette, who buried her face in her hands and blushed while the girls chastised the boys for being immature. And then they all go to Denny's at 12.30 a.m. As you can tell, I'm getting a little less uh, introspective with the, with the notes in this chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you have anything in particular? No, I, I thought it was interesting what, looking at what the people were reading. There's like really just like very random books that I've never heard of. So <laughs> maybe something for the infinite death nerd to look into and read. Okay. But that was it. Um, ooh, we get a bit of a bio on Oren. Oren got out of tennis when Mario was 11 and Hal was 9. He was no good and slugging it ranked in the 70s, which is the point where people have to decide whether to give up, live out a pathetic existence on some far-flung Eastern European barely pro circuit. Uh, yeah, you see that with basketball a lot. Well, I think everybody has that. Like, you can't cut in the NFL, so you go to the Canadian Football League or, you know, uh, like, in basketball, if you can't cut it in Asia, they love basketball. So they will take like any college guy who just could not go pro. Um, a little detail, the poor pro rectors at Enfield, uh, the third option of allowing graduates who can't cut the mustard to come back 
to help around the place for another year or two. They are seen as fuck-ups by the current Enfield students, a warning of what bottom-feeding awaits you if you can't deliver appropriately. Some pro-rectors are feared, but none are respected. They are seen as a purgatory. Yeah, the role is seen as purgatory that only prolongs personal failure. Brutal. Wow. Oren decided to attend college instead, which made his parents happy. His father was unsurprised, as much like Hal himself. Oren had experienced puberty late, which held him back as less skilled students simply outgrew his body's capabilities by the time puberty hit. He never caught up. This has become a new fascination with me. I know a few people who hit puberty late, and it really affected everything about who they were, which makes sense, like, if you're like a 16-year-old and suddenly – if you're a 16-year-old guy and all of a sudden everybody around you is huge and you're just uh, – did you ever watch the show Freaks and Geeks? No, I didn't. Ah, uh, Judd Apatow, <laughs> pretty much everybody in it is famous now. But one of the things they noted on in the commentary is that, like, there's two sets of characters, one of them being sophomores and the other one being freshmen. And they said when they were casting, they really wanted to make sure they wanted to get a freshman who was the right age, but looked like little kids to really highlight that. Like, you know, you go from middle school, you're going into high school and suddenly from your perspective, there are grown men and women walking around and you are still like a child in all physical. Yeah. I remember that's actually why I got out of football because I gained weight too quick and suddenly I was playing. I went from being the biggest kid to being the shortest kid and uh, wasn't fun. Not fun. Oh. Um, Oren points out he was well suited to college due to Enfield's academic rigors, which we mentioned Avril set up. Also points out that while his ranking was nowhere near good enough to go pro, his mediocrity was contextual and still pretty outstanding on a college admissions form and pretty enticing to any college tennis coach in the country, which I guess is a thing where tennis players tend to go pro at 18. Uh, decided that Boston University would be best for him. It would get him away from home while still making it easy for a visit. CT had some connections and flew down to BU from Canada to sort it out and make it so. Got to dictate his own scholarship after easily trouncing BU's best on the court. The fact that the coach couldn't take his eyes off his attractive mother certainly didn't hurt. I, I'm liking how Avril's coming out here. Yeah, and Tavis, too, comes out in this, uh-huh. in this chapter. Well, they say that it, uh, him coming down to set up this Boston University thing is part of what led him to coming down for good and taking over at Enfield after, uh, yeah, after himself suicide, which, again, we're finally getting to the Hamlet chunk of, you know, the dad's yes. gone and let me sneak in. Right, and... Yeah, I mean, I love the diatribe, this internal diatribe that we have of Charles Tavis, you know, talking about never expecting a thank you. I know we haven't gotten there yet, so I'll wait. No, no, you could get into that now if you want. Um, basically, it's a page and a half, which these pages are pretty big, okay? So this is a long diatribe about how Charles Tavis never really expected a thank you, and if he did expect a thank you, you know, that wouldn't have been a true act of service for his fellow man. And he talks about, um, you know, how hard it was for him taking over uh, Jim and Condenza's place and um, how maybe Oren resents him. It's just this whole anxiety-ridden internal dialogue (laughs) of this guy who basically slipped into 
we we think maybe he's Jim's brother. We're not really sure, but it seems kind of that way or someone that was in the family. So it's kind of creepy. Yeah, there's a lot of little incest things they're putting in here. Um, yes, hmm. actually. Like, I mean, they even, um, you know, when we get further into the football stuff, they talk about, um, oh man, it actually goes on for like two whole, uh, two whole pages about yeah. the diatribe. But yeah, they talk about, um, there's definitely weird things happening with um, Oren and his mom as well. Him comparing yeah. her to Joelle. Yeah, we'll get into hmm. that. Um, Oren decided the third week of college to try football due to tennis exhaustion, decided at 18 to become as good as a tennis player as he ever was destined to be. I actually like that. I like, like, okay, I hit a ceiling. I'm good now. Um, seems like with all of Oren's decisions, football, I just said orange, all of Oren's <laughs> decision, football had to do with sex. He had fallen for a baton twirler. Oh, again, little bit of treasure we find being revealed, little breadcrumb, a baton twirler that he'd nickname the prettiest girl of all time. She was so beautiful. She was almost shunned out of fear and anxiety and rejection. Again, that is uh, another DFW thing. This actually reminds me very specifically, I don't remember the character's name, but she was in the book Dead Eyed Dick by Kurt Vonnegut, who she was from like the poor side of town, but she was so pretty and she was just annoyed by how pr- I think she said like if I die and go to heaven I want to know what the hell was written on my face that people wouldn't stop reading it I roll okay yeah, yeah I mean they're all they also talk about Warren and Condenza who like many children of raging alcoholics and OCD sufferers had internal addictive sexuality issues so mm-hmm. they call out very specifically here that Oren is a sex addict oh yeah definitely um yeah do you have anything there just about women in general just because this isn't even directly in it i i i think of this as a guy like the odd occasion where i catch like a gay guy checking me out and just how strange and odd it feels and then to realize like oh i look at women like that all the time god that has to be that has to be exhausting i mean i think again we're putting women in a bucket. We have now identified very early on that Joelle is a pretty girl. She's actually the prettiest girl of all time. And then we, when we get into her characterization, it's like, oh, but she actually has this like dark side. And oh, you know, it's like the whole thing is in terms of cliches, like this is as cliches you get when it comes to a female love object in my opinion someone who can be rescued someone who's beautiful um which and even when you get into like her film um affiliations like the types of films she likes Oren swoops in and introduces her to film that's artsy and deep instead of what she's been watching which is more of like action films and things that are very entertaining and so the whole thing is yeah, it's a little um, eye-rolly, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Okay, and we're back 24 hours later. I had to uh, cancel the last recording for reasons I'm sure I will talk about in the intro plenty. We're back with Charlotte Mark. How you doing? 
Good. How are you? Ready for round two? Ready for round two, definitely. Okay, so we left off on uh, the PGOAT Joel, the prettiest girl of all time, and how she was so beautiful. She was almost shunned out of fear and anxiety of rejection. Again, David Foster Wallace working through some issues. <laughs> um, okay, so pretty much the big reason Oren uh, leaves tennis, gave up tennis just out of exhaustion from years and years of work, was mainly attracted to football because, of course, cheerleaders and baton twirlers not known to be cheering on the tennis players. Football, however, yes. Um, we talked before about how uh, Avril, Oren's mother, has like an immense beauty that really destroys the men around her, much like Joelle. And that when Oren quit the tennis, the tennis team, his coach weeped and pathetically asked if this meant his mother wouldn't come to watch the practices anymore. <laughs> yep. That poor guy. Um, that poor guy. Uh, Oren's tryouts for football went terrible. His magnetic repulsion to any kind of physical interaction with the other players was extreme. Was flat out grabbed by the face mask by a coach and directed to leave the field. Um, there's a little paragraph here on just the nature of destiny that I really liked a lot. Uh, the overall gist being that destiny is 99% the random winds of change and 1% the actual willpower you devote to molding it. Quote, destiny has no beeper. Destiny always leans trench coated out of an alley with some sort of that you usually can't even hear. You're in such a rush to or from something you've tried to engineer. I like that a lot. Do you have anything like that in your life? Yeah, pretty much everything, I would say. <laughs> um, I think it was, was it Paul McCartney that said, um, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans? And I think that that's very, mm -hmm. these kind of statements seem really parallel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And not only just like grabbing things like uh that's actually a huge chunk of my work history. I mean, I went to school for radiology and yet my first like job I had after college was uh, some friends of mine decided to make a movie and I just stuck up my hand and said, oh, I'll do, I'll do the music for it. And then I composed the soundtrack to three movies in six years. And like, that's it. not at all what I expected to do, but okay, I'll take that. Yeah. Well, I was studying literature eight years ago, and now I'm selling software. So there hey, you go. There you go. That's that. That's, that is that important uh, college degree that we're told you can't live without and end up not <laughs> <Right>. using. <laughs> um, oh, my so. emails are really good, though. So there you go. You can see. You can see the student <laughs> debt in those emails. <laughs> They're very eloquent. Okay. Um, okay, so what happened was, or I guess if I want to be a dickhead, I should say, so but when what happened was, while, <laughs> or while Oren was walking off the field, an over-enthusiastic special teams lineman fucked up and snapped the punter's leg in two. Uh, the ball had landed near Oren. The coach demanded it back. It was too far to throw, and he didn't want to walk it back. So without ever having kicked a football in his life, he kicked the football back, and it soared majestically. This is actually foreshadowed in the description uh, Dave Wallace has 
liked telling us the particular style of tennis a lot of the players played. And apparently, Oren, while not that great, was known to have a phenomenal lob that uh, supposedly he could arc it to hug the sides of the infield lung and strike a large coin precisely on the other side of the court, which, of course, would be a natural instinct for a punter. Uh, oh, yeah, apparently back then, Stitt and the other old infield types watched a cartridge of him and determined he was just using his same over-reliance on lobbing and applied, to punt- and applied it to punting. His overcompensation for his lack of improvement in tennis was now being rewarded by a special team's niche play in football. I really like that payoff that he spent so much time talking about how uh, people who hit plateaus, 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 and can't... <laughs> And can't get to the next level of skill. They tend to, like, overcompensate by honing to death the one skill they really do have. Yeah, and it's also just really funny to see all the hate he gets from these other tennis people who are just, like, you know, who constantly ask uh, how, you know, how's your brother who just kicks a ball for a living? You know, it's just like really funny to hear that uh, commentary throughout the book. Uh, Oh, and the important thing, and now that he had Joelle the baton girl to pine for, he had a renewed motivation that tennis hadn't provided in years. So I'm going to start something new this week. Uh, We have our word of the week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As I discussed, some people see these new words and say, oh, neat. And other people see it and say, oh, go fuck yourself, David Foster Wallace, (laughs) with a hot sauce soaked bandana. This might be the curse words we were talking about. Um, (laughs) So this week's word is phoneme. That is P-H-O-N-E-M-E. Regarding Oren's wordless courtship with Joelle, quote, Oren's life took bilateral route at a distance during games without one exchanged personal phoneme. Webster's Dictionary defines phoneme as a unit of sound that distinguishes one word from another in a particular language. Um, I actually had to look this up. So the best, de- the best example I could think of is uh, overpronouncing every small letter in a word. So cat, C-A-T. If you were to pronounce the phonemes, you would say cat. <laughs> so please enjoy that sharing, sharing that piece of information with your cat, who is the only creature that finds you tolerable because they don't have to speak with you. Okay. They they also, I will say, use it in linguistics to define, like, so for example, in within England, they have a wide variety of different, um, you know, for a language that is widely distributed throughout England, it sounds very different in different regions. And so one person who maybe has a Cockney accent would say tube instead of the tube, whereas another person who has more of a posh accent would say tube. And so they say that's a different phoneme. So. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't aware that was actually in popular use somewhere. It's like, a lingu- it's like a linguistical term. I would say unless you're a sociologist studying linguistics, you probably wouldn't know what that term was. But I did take linguistics, so I know what it is. But I don't think that anyone else – I would never use that in, like, common day language. Right. You wouldn't, you wouldn't use that to describe a punter falling in love with a baton twirler, <laughs> no. perhaps. Not no, I wouldn't use that language. Uh, well, that's here. why you and I are not MacArthur Genius recipients. So, <laughs> right. 
Okay. Uh, Joel approaches Oren one day, asking him to sign a ball he'd kicked the air out of that had landed in the marching band section and had been passed along to her. She wanted him to sign it for her dad. Um, Oren said football was more about was about more than the sport. He loved the response of 30,000 people cheering all at once. I do like the comparison here, uh, how tennis was so muted in that it's like the, the applause was slight and even frowned upon. He loved that it was so loud out there. He literally could not hear himself think to escape himself in a way he never could on the court. That is a great description. Mm-hmm. I, like I would say that's actually something I really miss from playing in bands that you can kind of like, obviously it's a little different. You're hiding within the sound you're creating, but yeah, just how it, just, you get kind of like isolation chambered a little bit in the sensation. Yeah. And I think you see the difference in classes here too. He comes from this tennis background, which mm. is kind of people golf clapping. And then he goes to this other culture, which is like very popular. Everyone goes after the game and, you know, drinks beer in a bar and that sort of thing, which um, you can tell that Avril isn't thrilled about him going in this direction. Um, yeah. Do you have anything specific there? I think I actually missed that note about, I know there's a, a general thing where like the moms was kind of like, well, we support you, whatever you do. And I, I think the dad actually kind of supported it a little bit. Yeah. There's a comment saying Avril made it clear that the very last thing she wanted was to have any of her children feel that they had to justify or explain to her of any sort of abruptly or even bizarrely sudden major decision they may happen to make. And there's little like jabs there where she Mm -hmm. kind of passive aggressively is like, well, this is really bizarre, but you do you, you know, (laughs) Um, which I think is really funny. but yeah, I, there's a couple of little things like that that come out that are one-liners, but it isn't it isn't um, pervasive. Okay. Um, so he and Joel moved in together off campus. I actually reread this a few times. Like, did I miss a line here? Because it went from like she signed a football to they moved in together. Um. Yeah. Is that okay? Um, yeah, so Seems like it happened pretty fast. Yeah. Okay. And then I think something that we mentioned, we may have mentioned in part one is that he, Oren is kind of comparing her to the mom. She made moms look like the sort of piece of fruit you think you want to take out of the bin. But then once you're right there over the bin, you put it back because from close up, you can see much fresher and less preserved seeming piece of fruit elsewhere in the bin, which is weird to compare your mom yeah. and your girlfriend to fruits in uh in a grocery store and then he also talks about um the stadium being like the womb and being amniotic so i'm seeing major mommy issues here and then yeah it seems like his relationship goes really fast okay um oh a great line here quote the all new inconveniences of being publicly stellar at a major sport in a city where people beat each other to death in bars over stats and fealty that is in relation to Boston, but uh, as uh, from where I broadcast in Port Richmond, Philadelphia, yeah, we, we know that quite a bit. Um, That's, an, I feel like, another little jab, class jab from BMW. Where are you at? I don't think I asked you that at all. I have no idea. 
In Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. You know, it's funny. I was actually, I had a Facebook memory come up today from a cross-country trip I went on where, you know, not Austin, in uh, Amarillo, Texas, were the photos that popped up. This, okay. It's horrifically hot here right now. I can barely survive, so. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like 97 degrees in Pennsylvania. I can only imagine what it's like in the literal desert of Texas. Yeah, it's like the bowels of hell, for sure. So. Yeah, God. Okay. Uh, Joel had done the midnight Thanksgiving dinner at Enfield and met Avril and Oren went to Kentucky with Joel for Christmas and met her parents and endured her father's complete lack of smiling. Uh, Oren had wired his friends to tell them he was in love. We find out Joel started cocaine around his freshman year on new year. He actually found he had a weird thrill out of being sober while she got high to be with someone feeling at their max freedom and being the only person they want to enjoy that feeling with. Okay. That's a little. Right. Mommy issues. Yeah. yeah. Weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Joelle had decided to change her major to film. Her favorite genre was unpretentious blockbusters where a lot of shit blows up. Like that. Oren once told her it was strange watching big movies with a girl who was prettier than the girls on screen. He really seems to compare her to everybody else as opposed to any, like, as opposed to, oh, you're so swell. It's like, you're a lot sweller than the people on screen or my mommy or a piece of fruit, I guess. Yeah, I think it's less of a comparison and more of him just being so obsessed with her and him holding her on such a high pedestal that it's like, you're you're hotter than Megan Fox, you know? And it's like, okay, <laughs> it's a lot to take on, I feel like, for another person. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but, but. Oren introduced her to avant-garde filmmaking, which became a minor obsession. He showed her some of uh, his father's films, James and Candanza himself, who began to slowly use her in films. Uh, a hand here, a foot there. This, however, was the beginning of the end as Joel declined to return to BU instead to film more with himself while Oren stayed behind to play football. Joel quit twirling and started filming exp experiments instead, primarily filming Oren's punts. Oren found the footage of himself punting enchanting, so much so that it often gave him an erection while watching himself. Yeah. Narcissism yeah. at its finest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've I've watched some footage of myself. Uh, arousing would not be the word I would think of. More um, obsessive detailing over faults and flaws. More accurately, I don't know. Right, and I don't even know if it's so much arousal at him, but it's arousal at him imagining her watching him or something uh, okay i guess there could be said that it's a little bit of like watch seeing as how she's actually running the equipment it's a little bit of watching himself through her eyes right like i think that he's so obsessed with her that even seeing her perspective is arousing to him hmm. okay I could get that. It's weird. I could get behind that a this little bit. this is me defending oren but yeah it's weird <laughs> whatever way you slice it it's weird and uh, that is all the notes I have for this section. Do you have anything I might have missed? No. I mean, I just, just that I think it's, <laughs> I think it's funny that he 
finds it necessary to correct her taste in film with mm. more avant-garde stuff. And then I do think that we start seeing some more incestuous things happening where, you know, Jim and Condensa clearly is starting to have a liking to her and we don't really know where that's going yet, but that's a little bit of foreshadowing around, you know, what his relationship is going to be like with her. Um, and I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. That definitely is a weird foreboding of, you know, your father being interested in your girlfriend. Like, Oh, let me, let me show you a thing or two down in my, down in my studio where the magic happens. So. Right. And specifically filming her hand or foot like this kind of obsession with little parts of her and filming Mm. those is very sexual in my opinion. And I also think there is some weirdness around her calling her father her personal daddy, which feels mm, yeah, it's like little... what you would call your like older hot boyfriend or something. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but that all of that does feel very Hamletian in that Hamlet becomes very obsessed with his mother and father's mm. relationship there's weird things happening throughout that play in other relationships that feel a little bit incestuous as well. And so I think that that's coming through in some of these sections. Okay. All right. Now, real quick, how far ahead are you right now? I'm only ahead like 30 pages on this. I'm on page 520. Oh God. Okay. So not honestly, not that much farther. Mm. (laughs) How, how is it? Do you think, do you think you've enjoyed more where you've read after this point or before this point? So after for sure. Okay. Um, I do think that part of the allure of infinite jest is that it makes the reader feel smart and accomplished, which I think is why it resonates with certain people that have mm-hmm. that identification of themselves as an academic or as smart. Um, so I will say that when I'm like carrying around infinite chest, I like feel, you know, (laughs) I feel, I feel some sort of way about myself. I feel intelligent. I I feel intellectual. I, I feel safe because it's big enough to use as a weapon and to bludgeon people who would do me harm. I have something that would be of use in multiple different contexts, (laughs) but, um, but would I read it again? I'm not really sure. And I think this is water is like a perfectly condensed version of what he's trying to say Mm. in this book in 20 minutes. So, okay. See, that's part of the thing that I had going into this because it's God, the people who love this book, they're really like, you know, well, it helps if you have a dictionary next to you the entire time. Like that sounds horrible, but then, and then they try to go, well, actually it's really, it's so much better the second time. Like, you are not selling me on the first one. You know, there's nothing. Right. Or when they go into the French or then they ha- use these Latin phrases, like instead of suicide, they say philo de se. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know the Latin word for suicide, you know? So yeah, that has been also, I mean, thankfully I know a little bit of French, but for someone who doesn't know French, like that becomes difficult. So mm. yeah, I do think, um, I do think it's purposefully a bit alienating, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm determined to finish this thing. I'm going to finish this thing. 
Nice. And I'll let you know what I think after. Okay. See, I'm coming up. I think I have about a hundred pages more and then I'll be where I was at. I'll be at my high water mark where I gave up the first time when I was like 23. Dude, you got far before giving up. Like, I'm surprised that you threw in the hatchet at page whatever, 400. <laughs> well, I was, I, I was determined because, again, the whole thing with this podcast, I know it has the title, I Hate Infinite Jess. I don't actively hate it. It's just, you know, an intriguing name that makes what some people want to check it out. It makes other people send me very angry messages that are... You've been fooled, listener. <laughs> exactly. But for me, it was just... I, I didn't understand the appeal and that drove me crazy because I there are things I see out that people that are interested in that I don't like. I'm not a big fan of hip hop music and that's just because I come from such a big rock and roll background and it, 20th century music that this was just so different. I can't really get my arms around it, but I can get what other people like about it. This mm -hmm. book I read almost halfway through and I didn't, I didn't even understand its appeal, let alone mm -hmm. what was happening. So that's the entire purpose of this podcast is finding out what the, what am I missing out on? Right. I mean, the writing is killer. So for someone who really cares about prose, I think it's, I think he's a phenomenal writer. There's no getting mm -hmm. around that. But I do think that the way things are strung together is, um, is interesting, but who knows? I mean, like we don't know until we finish, right? We can't make a judgment exactly. call. So and I'm I, just plowing the, through. The big thing I keep saying is it is getting better as I go, which is, which to me just makes it so much more annoying. Like, Oh, you had the ability to make this good from page one, but you decided <laughs> to fuck with me. So, or but. you've acclimated to the world at this point. That's the other thing that people say is at a certain point, you are acclimated to his style of writing, which makes it, it's almost like you've, you're now a part of this language or understand the language that he's writing in. And now you have a better um, understanding to kind of attack the rest of the book in a way that may be more enjoyable. Okay. You know what? I'm, I'm going to disagree, but for a very specific reason. <laughs> um, so the whole reason uh, we had to stop yesterday was that I had slotted about an hour to, to record with you and an hour has been more than sufficient unfortunately what happened was we hit that hour and we still had a good amount of notes left so as somebody who's summarizing as I go and right you can't see but I am gesturing towards my other laptop that I have been slaving over right this in the early chunk of the book there are like chunks of seven to eight pages at a time that you can summarize in like a paragraph Whereas mm -hmm. now to actually keep track of what's happening and what's important, there's a lot of fluff in the beginning, which I know he, I know some people would think of as world building, but like that chunk where he just talks about like the technical specs of a film cartridge viewer, it's just, I, it doesn't like, I can look up a VCR if I want to, I don't need this. There's got to be a reason for that. There has to be, like, he's testing the reader. There's a barrier to entry to get in. Mm. Or there has to be, I think that, honestly, there is a method to the madness, whether or not we agree to it. But I'm curious to, to kind of retroactively look at this and say mm. what my hypothesis is on that. But, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think some of the sections in the beginning are very weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, the important thing is on we're on the path and we're getting there. So, 
Charlotte Mark, thank you again very much for uh, doing this episode with me. It's been. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Yes. Again, thank you for being cool with me just dropping the recording in the middle of it yesterday. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Again, uh, where can we find you on social media or anything you feel like promoting? No, I at Charlotte J. Mark, you guys can say hi there, but otherwise, no. Yeah, otherwise, no leave, leave her alone. <laughs> otherwise, uh, leave me alone. <laughs> while we're here, do you have any, what's like a favorite book of yours or something? Like, it, recommend something to us. How about that? I like Donna Tartt. Um, I like, you know, female writers. So um, I like The Secret History. Have you heard of that? I have not, but after uh, after uh, Cousin Frank on episode six, where he said he was really trying to dedicate himself to reading books by people that do not look like him, I think I actually want to start leaning in that direction when I realized that pretty much all my favorite authors were old, white, male, and dead, so... Which I love the old white male and dead also. So mm-hmm. um, no hate coming from me. But I do I do love her writing in The Secret History. She writes in the voice of a man, which I think is very interesting. And she also does that in her most recent book, The Goldfinch, which had a little bit more critical acclaim and was more widely spread. It became a movie. Okay, she, yeah, and I heard so, that. Yeah, that, that book is phenomenal also. I've heard the movie wasn't great, but... Um, I really love her. I mean, I read um, the Neapolitan novels um, by Elena Ferrante. They were fabulous. I mean, I would say that those are, those lean, it's about a flick female relationship kind of um, going throughout the years. Um, Her writing is phenomenal. Her storytelling is phenomenal. Um, I don't know. Those are like the books like I've really loved recently. but I also will just read Sally Rooney every once in a while just to get some, like, I don't know if you've read any of her stuff, but nah. it's like, yeah, it's like softcore, uh, you know, Irish porn. Kind of. okay. I mean, it's like really, I've, I've peppered that into um, Infinite Jest. It's highbrow, but okay. I've peppered that into Infinite Jest just as like highbrow something really quick that I can read. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Well, Charlotte. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I am going to stop recording, but we can still talk for a second or two. Goodbye. Okay, thanks. Bye. (laughs)